Let me start by just giving a collective, oh man, I, I really like those, so that's too bad. Let me open with prayer. God, we love you so much, and we just thank you for night. We thank you for a night that we can come in from the hot and the muggy and just uh, be in the cool of your sanctuary and, and learn again about your word. As we go through this gospel of Matthew, Lord, may you continue to open up its pages to us. May we continue to add insight to our understanding, especially today of, of Holy Week and some of the things that led up to it. May it understand what Jesus was teaching and more importantly, how it impacts and affects our lives today. Father, we pray for that, that you send your spirit of power to us and give us understanding and wisdom and most of all comfort and peace as a result of this word. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Okay, we're picking up tonight in Matthew 21, starting with verse 33. But just as kind of a review, we last week talked about kind of the triumphal entry. He's coming in Jerusalem with a lot of fanfare, people excited about him. He's doing a lot of things to kind of make the case that he's the Messiah. I mean, he's not telling everybody he's the Messiah, but he's making the case. He's fulfilling prophecy. He's coming in Jerusalem, riding on a donkey again in fulfillment of prophecy. Then he starts doing some things that say the status quo of our current religious state, the way our church is working, the religious elite, there's some brokenness. There's some stuff where we're just missing the boat. There's some stuff where it's just not connecting people with me anymore, God anymore. And so he goes and he upends the temple. And as he begins to kind of draw this delineation between the Jewish hierarchy of the Jewish religious state of the day and what God really wants to happen, he kind of starts to upset the religious elite in all new ways than ever before. They, it's like coming into your hometown and saying, throwing down the gauntlet. And, and so they began a quest of trying to trip Jesus up in his words, trying to show the people that he's not who he says he is, trying to trip him up in his words or expose some kind of insincerity or something that's just wrong, get in trouble with the Roman law, but so far, at least this far, to no avail. And so we begin again by a parable that Jesus shares, again shared toward the religious elite of his day, and he says this, here another parable, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. This was quite a, a capital expense. This was a man of means. This was a man of power. And, and he lived in a different country, but he had acquired this land as another way to build his income. And he didn't just build a field. I mean, he put a wall around it, which would protect it from, you know, the beasts of the field that would come in and steal stuff like rabbits and all that kind of stuff. He, he put a wall around it that would protect it from some of the pollinating of weeds. I mean, he did a lot of things, put a wine press right in the middle so as to, to minimize travel costs and also expense of lost produce. He built a tower to protect it from enemies or thieves. I mean, built quite the place. The people that worked there were lucky to have such a place to work. This was a good deal. Anyway, he went to another country, and when the season drew for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. This would have been a prior arrangement. It says, you owe me X amount, X percent of the fruit, and it's just my pay. You can keep the rest. And that's how it would have gone. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed the other, and stoned the other. 
I don't know if it's because he lived in a different country that they thought he could get away with it. I mean, what's he going to do now? They maybe thought to themselves. Or maybe it was purely out of greed that they thought, maybe we can get away with this. What's he going to do? And so we'll just not do it and see what happens. We'll just not do it because we think we can get away with it. Right? Isn't that really what initiates all sin in our life anyway? We think we can get away with it? I mean, that's what Satan's whispering in our ears. Hey, nobody's, nobody's going to find out or, or nobody's going to know or nobody's going to call you to account on this. And so we sin boldly, and that's what these guys did. Not only did they say you're not getting your percentage, but they beat his servants, they killed his servants, and they stoned them. So again, and maybe the owner was just gracious in this, but maybe they didn't, he thought maybe they didn't recognize my servants. So again, he sent other servants, more than the first, a contingent to show them maybe the respect that they were missing or to show them that he meant business. But they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have the inheritance for ourselves. I've always said that sin makes you stupid, right? This was along the lines of stupidity in the terms of rational thinking. But again, let's see what we can get away with. Hey, if he has no son to give it to, hey, if he hasn't collected the produce, maybe this goes over to default to somebody else. Maybe we get to keep everything and we'll never be called to account. Maybe he can't afford to keep this going and can't afford to send an army to discipline us in any way. Let's kill the son too. So far we've gotten away with everything. They took him and they threw him out in the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those servants? They said to him, they will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them fruits in their season. Voice of reason finally from the crowd. Now he's sharing this with the Pharisees, directly to the Pharisees. He's sharing, I've sent prophet after prophet after prophet to you, calling you to come back, calling you to repent, calling you to follow me. But you've beat some and you've killed another and still stoned furthermore. I sent you even more than that. I, all sorts of prophets have I sent you, even up to John the Baptist who was just here, and what did you do to him? And finally, he said, I came, the son. And yet I know your evil intent and this prophecy that I give you in the terms of this parable will be fulfilled. You think to yourselves, if we can rid him, somehow we secure position in place. Somehow we rid the earth of this one who's complicating our ministry, who's complicating our our power, our position. And yet the voice of reason still remains. When you can take a step back and look what you're doing, what will he do? What will the owner of the field, what will God do when he comes? What will he do to those tenants when he comes? And the same thing will happen. He will put those wretches to his miserable death and let out the vineyards to other tenants. He will give them the fruit in their season. God desires those who will follow him, who have that humble and repentant heart, who seek to trust him, who seek to follow. And those are his people. Those are his followers. And if one set won't do it, it'll replace them with one that will. And ultimately, that's what would happen to the Jewish church. It would be replaced by a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, both who now were members of this new church, not by inheritance rights 
or genealogical record, but by faith. Jesus then said to them, have you never read in the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, speaking again, a course of himself. And this was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God, and now speaking very directly toward them, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who produces fruits. And then he says, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. In other words, humbled, made contrite before him, seeking repentance and forgiveness and finding joy. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And there will be no forgiveness. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the par- this parable, he, they perceived that he was speaking about them, which is good because he said you, right? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Just, so just understand the complexity of the situation. They want to kill this guy. They want to rid the earth of Jesus. They want to arrest him now. But everybody thinks he's a prophet. So they do nothing. And they let his testimony stand And they don't combat him, and they don't refute him, and they just let it stand. Got a a question, because Cornerstone, the historical minute video, is good to go. Okay, and if it's about this, let's, let's show the historical minute for a second. Go ahead. Jesus is going to call himself the Cornerstone, so... What does that mean? Whenever you build a building, you know, back then you start by creating a corner where two walls would eventually come together. And you start by placing a large prominent stone first that all the other stones would go around. In other ancient building practices, the cornerstone would actually be last and on top, binding the walls and the structures together. In the Bible, this building practice was also used metaphorically to describe a person who was foundational and central, and sometimes in a prophetic way to describe the Messiah. Jesus certainly meant this whenever he described himself as the cornerstone. He quotes Psalm 18.22, which says that the stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. In other words, they rejected Jesus, who is the Messiah, the cornerstone, the foundation for their faith and salvation. So there you go. A little bit about the cornerstone, and that's enough today for our historical minute. See, that just worked out perfectly. I love that. All right. All right. Now he goes on and he gives another parable. Again, it's a similar kind of parable to the one that he just gave. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. It's almost, I heard a pastor one time talking about this in conjunction to inviting people to church. You keep on opening up the doors. You keep on inviting them, but fewer and fewer come, he said. Again, he sent out servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Now, what's interesting about this is it says here, Send his servants to call on those who were invited. That means they were already invited. They had already accepted. Okay? So he was just basically saying, The dinner is ready. Y'all come now. After accepting that initial invitation, all of a sudden, they couldn't make it anymore. They had things to do, places to go. Kind of reminds me when... Oh, I think the Golden State Warriors won the championship, but they didn't want to go to the White House, or at least some of them didn't want to go to the White House, right? Invited to go to this amazing place, but I got things to do, places to go. 
This could be in every way considered political insubordination too. A king had requested. That really wasn't a request. It was a command. Come to the wedding feast, he cried. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Again, sin makes us stupid. Apparently they thought they could get away with it. And so obviously the king became angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers, and he burned their city. Again, as we assume this is a depiction of the Jewish state, he says, I called you to come, to follow me, to be obedient, to, to cling to my son, the Messiah, who I'm just sent to you for the salvation of your souls. But you wouldn't believe. You wouldn't come. You killed John the Baptist. Soon you will kill my son. And so he would destroy those murderers and burn their city, which many think is a reference to AD 70, as a prophecy. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding feast, as many as you can find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to in to look at the guests, there he saw a man who had no wedding garments, I guess one of the bad. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without the wedding garment? A wedding garment was a sign of respect toward the host. It was a sign of celebration for the wedding banquet that is about to start. It was a sign of reverence to the one who invited you. It was, just, it was just proper etiquette. It was the right thing to do. But this one guy decided, not for me. He took it for granted, I guess, figuring that, you know, the king had invited all these people. They, he's actually lucky that I'm even here, maybe. And I don't have to go through all this rigmarole or whatever it might be. But he took it less seriously, obviously, than the rest. But when the king confronted him, he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. There's a lot of stuff in there. It's kind of a complicated verse, especially with this one piece here, but Luther talks about it, a visible and invisible church, and so you would imagine that even those that say, we want to follow you with all our hearts, and they show up on Sunday, right, and they show up, you know, during the year, and they show up to Bible studies, and Luther would always say there's a visible church and those are the ones that you see come. And there's an invisible church of those who truly believe and put their faith in Jesus. And there's always been a visible and an invisible church. There's always been a true believers in the midst of unbelievers. And so you get to a sense of you've invited the good and the bad. But ultimately, God is one who judges the heart. It's not up to us, thank goodness, because it gets all murky and confusing for us trying to judge other people's hearts and other people's face. And I was, in fact, I was talking to somebody, and he says, how do you think God decides that? And I said, well, God has perfect wisdom. I think it's pretty simple. He looks at the heart to see if there's faith. And there either is or there isn't. For those that believe, he brings to heaven for eternity with him, an unending blessedness, and peace, and contentment. And for the rest, he, well, there's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, sorrow and, and regret, then he says, for many are called, but few are chosen. The first group of people, they were called, weren't they? Come to my banquet, they said. And they chose not to. They had other things to do. Whose fault was it that they didn't come? Theirs. Even this last group, they were invited into the banquet, almost forced in some ways. 
but there was a proper etiquette to follow. There was an obedience that was at hand. Whose fault was it that that young man or whoever that man was that was out in wedding clothes was cast out? His. See, this interesting thing about election, this being chosen and called, everybody is called. I want, Jesus says, I want you all to come and be with me forever in heaven. I sent my son Jesus to forgive all of you. All of you can receive the forgiveness. All of you can receive the strength and the hope and the promise that you'll be with me forever in heaven. Just believe in my son. It's not even hard. We don't have to climb to the highest mountain. We don't have to go kill a whole army of people. We have to believe. We have to trust him with our heart, which I guess becomes the easiest and the hardest thing to do. He says, trust me. All I want you to do and trust me Yet over and over, we see people in our lives, we see people in the world saying, no, that seems too hard. I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. In a sense, they say, I want to be my own God, do what I want to do. And over and over, people reject that invitation to come. And ultimately, paints a picture for us between the called and the chosen. See, ultimately, God knows who the chosen are, right? I mean, he has all history in his view. He can see all things. He knows who's going to be with him forever and eternity. But it's never God's fault when they reject, when they turn away, when they choose not to believe. It's one of the hard truths of the Bible that it's our fault when we're condemned and it's God's fault when we're saved, right? That through the Spirit, he continues to encourage and chasten and encourage and forgive and renew. It gives you a picture, too, as Jesus goes through this, you've seen that the crowds held that Jesus was a prophet, especially in the midst of these kind of, of parables that were basically condemning them for their unbelief. It gives you a picture of why Judas had to eventually betray Jesus. Crowds were against the Pharisees. There was no way they were going to authorize any of this. They needed somebody on the inside to discredit Jesus, somebody on the inside to give him up. And then even when they did, when did they persecute the guy in the middle of the night? They needed as much time and as much evidence as they could to show that this was a discreditation, that he wasn't who he said he was. They needed that time in the middle of the night to ramrod through this fiction. Pharisees sent somebody else, though, tried to discredit Jesus. It says, then the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, right, they went and they plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Uh, those would have been people who were um, friends of the family of Herod or, or certainly working in his administration, saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anybody's opinion, for you are not swayed by, uh, by appearances. And so tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. It was true. It was part flattery, uh, part trick, right, in this. He was somebody that just spoke it the way it was. He, he didn't kind of kowtow to people and say, well, I, you know, I don't know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. He always spoke truthfully from God's word. And so they're trying to put him in a spot. Uh, what did I write here? Revolt of Judas was in 86. And it was a revolt against the taxation of the Roman government on the people of Jerusalem. And they had this big revolt and it was put down brutally uh, as a result. But the zealots of Jesus' day were really people that continued on that, I guess now more of a peaceful, more or less peaceful resistance. There were skirmishes here and there. Zealots all started stirring up problems here and there. But it was, all, it was all because they couldn't stand the fact that Rome was over them and was taxing them to death. And this enjoyed popular support 
popular nationalism in Jerusalem. The people maybe didn't cheer it from the streets lest they get in trouble, but they were all supportive of this resistance. So if Jesus said, oh, you have to pay to to Caesar, he would have upset the mass majority of the people that were listening. If he had said, oh, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians were there and he would have gotten in trouble with Rome. So he responded, Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Then he said, show me the coin. And what's interesting about the Roman denarius is that it had a picture of, of Caesar on it and it had an inscription that said, son of God, attributed to Caesar. They hated this coin, partly because in the Ten Commandments it said there should be no graven image and there Caesar was on this coin for all to see. Partly because it said he was son of God, which is an affront to everything that they believed. And it was really, it boiled down to this question, is it right to give honor and deference to a foreign, unbelieving king? Or is it right to give those things to God and God alone? It was a big question. Jewish people struggled with this a great deal. They hated the Roman taxation. The only, it, what's also interesting is they created other copper and, and gold coins for commerce in, Ju, in, in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas in deference to the Jews because they knew they hated this coin. They had the inscription of Caesar and calling him the son of God. So for regular commerce, they used different kinds of coins. But for taxation, which is why you understand they had all these money changers changing currency, they had to use this Roman denarius. So Jesus, I guess, in his, this has got to be the 100% God part, right? He asked them to show him a coin, and they readily produced and brought him a denarius. The fact that they readily produced this coin that everybody hated kind of undercut their argument just a little bit. And so Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin that you have in your hand? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The only reason you'd have a coin is to pay the Roman tax. He says, render to the Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It doesn't have nothing to do with our commerce on a regular basis. It has nothing to do with anything except for this tax. If you have that coin, give it back to Caesar. Pay what you do. And render to thing, God the things that are God's. So some commentators also make this, uh, this push, and I don't know um, how it fits, but I think there's some merit in it. By Jesus doing this, he didn't undercut the fact that it's important to pay taxes. In fact, he supported it. And it goes along with the government is not in opposition to God, right? But they can coexist unless they're in, in, in direct opposition. And so God, as well as Paul and, and all the way through the scriptures, call us to obey the government in our land. And the only time that we are to disobey the government in any possible way, any of the laws of the land, is if it directly confronts, or I mean, sorry, directly conflicts with what scripture says. And then it says we are to peaceably resist, knowing that there will be consequence, knowing that we could go to jail as a result, knowing that we could be sued as a result. Because when push comes to shove, his servants must serve God and God alone. But there are often consequences to saying no to the to regular government. When those things don't conflict, as the case of paying taxes here, then we are to do what God says, what, what our government has asked us to do. They provide, God has a purpose for our government. They have a role to protect us, to serve us in all these different ways. God says they deserve their hire. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. 
And he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. One by one, these groups are coming to Jesus, and he continues to answer in ways that teaches the crowd, undercuts their authority, and just leaves them speechless. And they say, we can't afford to keep talking to the guy, right? Sadducees now, these are the ruling party of the temple. These are the people that only believe in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And they also do not believe in the resurrection. All important things to understand about this group that is now coming to Jesus. There's also a huge debate in Judaism at this time. Is there a resurrection? Is there an afterlife or not? Pharisees said yes. Sadducees said no. That same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no children, left his wife, left his wife to his brother. So do the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. You can imagine this was an argument um, that they used against the Pharisees time and time again. It was said somewhat tongue-in-cheek, somewhat seriously, um, because they didn't believe in the resurrection at all, and so they were just putting it out there to see what Jesus would say. And what's interesting is Jesus answered them from the Pentateuch, from the first five books of the Bible. He didn't bring in the Psalms. He didn't bring in the writings. He, he just stuck to the first five books as he responds because he knew the Pharisees kept bringing those other things to no avail. And so Jesus says, you are wrong because you need, know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, they did have a great understanding of the scriptures. They just didn't believe and fully understand what they were reading, apparently. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Are they angels in heaven? No, they are like angels in heaven. Angels are their own creation of God, amazing creation, and humans are their own amazing creations. We don't turn into angels when we die. Where did we get that? From that famous Christmas movie where, you know, if a bell rings, you turn into an angel. That is not the way it works, right? And then he goes this, and he says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, which they kind of mocked in this question, have you not read what it was said to you by God? And he gives an illustration of Moses as he was at the burning bush. And at that point, God said this to Moses. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. And you can just see it was an aha moment. It was an oh no moment. It was we better stop talking moment. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This was a major debate between the two hierarchical pieces of the Jewish church, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus used the Pentateuch against the Sadducees in a way that not only made them quiet, but that made sense to everybody. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together one more time. We're going to give it another shot, they said. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And this was part of the Shema that they would say every week. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, not depicting three parts of man, but just all of man together. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. One person said this kind of shows the primacy of love and God's law. 
that God calls us to follow him out of love for us, trying to protect us as we walk through life. He wants what's best for us. He cares so much about us. My buddy one time, the same one I bring up all the time, and we had, I don't know, thousands now at this point, conversations about God. But he said one time, he said, you know, Mike, the thing that makes me think that there's a God that loves me more than anything else, and he said, you're going to laugh, is the Ten Commandments. And, and to be honest, I was taken back a little bit. That was like the last thing I thought that would show him God's love. But he said, if I had followed those, maybe a lot more like you did, I could have avoided a lot of pain in my life that I brought upon myself. That and that alone shows me that I have a God that cares about me. The challenge is if I would just listen. It's the primacy of love. Uh, is it loving to let people believe a lie instead of telling them the truth? Not true love. Love for yourself, perhaps. You don't want to get it mixed in. Is it loving to let people believe evil is good and good is evil? No. It's the opposite of love. Is it loving not to tell the truth? No. You see, when, when God speaks of love, it's, it's not the love that you hear some in the church saying that God is just love. He just loves you all the time. You can't do anything wrong because he just loves you. And it's the love of a grandpa that just doesn't care what you do. He just loves you because you're his granddaughter or grandson. And he's just going to love you completely no matter what. It's a sheer love from this guy. And that's all that there is. Except that's not the depiction that scripture gives us of who God is. Now he does love us like that. But he also loves us too much to allow us to be, leave a lie. Or to believe evil is good and as good as evil. Why? Because it harms us when we sin. It makes our lives more complicated. It harms us in every possible way. It separates us from him. And his ultimate desire is that we be with him in heaven forever and ever and ever. So why complicate that? He loves us too much to let that happen. And so all the way through scriptures, you see that we have a God of law and gospel. Law in the sense of, I love you too much to let you keep on destroying yourself. And a gospel that says, no matter how many times you mess up, I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to wrap you up in your, my arms of love. And I'm going to wipe you down. And I'm going to set you up. And I'm going to set you back out there because you know I got you. So follow me. He's a God that loves us completely. Now I say that because I think we walk through this life sometimes misinterpreting this idea of love. There's people in our life that we need to have hard conversations with so that they end up in heaven. Is that true? Yeah. And when we just pretend that everything is copacetic and that all things are fine and it's not our responsibility to kind of mix it up, who are we loving? Just us. And it's like we're waving to them on the Titanic as they're going down saying, have a good trip, even though I know you're not going to make it. It's the love of self that keeps us from having those tough conversations because we don't want to mess up the relationship and so impact our lives. We don't want to create a friction or an awkwardness with somebody because it might be difficult for us. But isn't it worth sharing that truth in love if somehow, some way, they end up in heaven? If somehow there's a way to spend your forever and ever with this person? It's to our shame that we do that, to be honest. And I'm not saying you just bulldoze people not in love. That happens too often and it causes worse problems than, than if you had said nothing. But starting with the idea that sin destroys, 
Sometimes we gotta figure out ways to share truth and love so they don't destroy themselves continually and permanently. It's the primacy of love that Jesus talks about here. Love for him, first and foremost, and actual love for our neighbor, which means we love them enough to try to get them to heaven. They can still reject. My buddy is still, right? right? But you know what I share with my buddy? He knows that I care about him 100%. He knows that I'd do almost anything for him 100%. He's even said, I said one time, do you know why I share all this stuff with you? And he's like, yeah, you don't want me to go to hell, Right? So he gets why I share it. And because of the care that I have for him, he lets me say what I need to say. He doesn't listen to a thing I say, but he lets me say what I say. And I pray that one day all those words somehow come to fruition and that it changes his heart and he follows Jesus. I would love to see him forever in heaven. And I love him too much not to say anything. Even when I know he might not hear it, I love him too much not to say anything. It's a different kind of love than we've been taught cover Cosmo or whatever it might be. But it talks about this primacy of love that's in a different way. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So now Jesus is turning the table, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, son of David. Does that phrase sound familiar? Palm Sunday, what were they crying out? The crowd's crying out, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord is said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until, you put, until I put your enemies under your feet? The answer that was obvious is that the Lord of David is the Messiah. The one who is to come is the one that was before. Then when the Messiah came, he was not only descendant of David, but Lord of David but they couldn't say that. Not in front of the crowds. Not to validate what Jesus was trying to get the crowds to believe, which is the fact that he was the Messiah. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Why do you get to that point? Because you realize that everything you say is backfiring. Everything you say is building people's faith, not tearing it down. You're not accomplishing your mission. And do you think this made him more frustrated and more angry? You bet. With no more questions, Jesus now turns to the crowds and begins to teach them and the disciples. And again, he continues this drawing a separation between the church of his day and what God's ideal was. And he wasn't just calling for reformation like all the prophets in the past really were calling them back to repentance, right? He was saying it's about fulfillment, it's about the promise. It's about a new covenant. You see, what he was promising was that he was the Messiah, the one that would forgive, restore, reconcile, and save his people. And they all wanted that. Those were all prophecies about the Messiah, and they were all craving for that. They just didn't really understand how he was going to go about it. They thought he was going to become an earthly king. What would transpire is very different. So then Jesus turns to the crowds and to his disciples. Oh, it's time, isn't it? Okay. Okay, how parts can I? Oh, there's a question. I'll do that one. Uh, all are called, but what makes some of those chosen? 
God does. Um, so I'll talk about this. This is one of the hard parts of, or not hard parts, but one of the most difficult truths of Scripture. So from the beginning of time, God has an elect, a chosen people that will be with him in heaven. He knows this for he has foreknowledge. He sees all things. He sees the past and the future all at the same time. It's why all the things that have been prophesied are fulfilled. He can act in the midst of them to make sure all those different things. And so he knows ultimately who are going to be saved. Those are ultimately the chosen. God knows who the chosen are. His promise is that he will lose none of those that he has chosen ever. They can't be lost. Problem for us is we don't know who the chosen are, except for today. How do you know if you're the chosen? I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of my life. It means I trust him with my life. That means if I die tonight, I know I'm going to be with him in heaven forever and ever and ever. I know today that I am chosen. So I would just say to you, don't ever give that away. Right? It's a way to secure your chosenness or your election, I guess is a better way to say it, is don't give away what God has given to you, ever. Remember in the, in the parable, how did you lose that chosenness or that election? Whose fault was it? Yours. Now that you have it, now that you're God's child, now that he's been walking with you for up to however many years, now that you ha- he has you in his arms, now that you've known his love, his forgiveness, the peace that comes through him, the hope that comes through him, the strength, the answered prayers, don't ever give it away. It's not up for us to know who the chosen and unchosen are. We know we're the chosen today. And there is comfort in that. And there is peace in that. And so I say to you, just don't ever give it away to anybody. Satan can't take it away from you. God's promise. No other person could possibly take it away from you. You cannot lose it unless you give it away. Don't give it away. And spend your every day secure in God's arms secure in your salvation and then who cares who the chosen is or not because you know you are and so the chosen are the ones that end up in heaven and god sees that and knows that and only he does and the rest of us operate under those who believe go to heaven and those who don't do not now believers don't give that salvation don't give that gift don't give that peace that forgiveness that joy away i think that's the healthiest and best way to look at it and it gives you peace Today, you don't ever have to worry, am I going to go to heaven? Because you know you are. And it's only walking away from Christ to stop trusting him and his word that, that somehow complicates that. And so we'll pick up on the woes uh, next week. Um, Jesus now turns to the, to, the, to the crowd instead of the Pharisees and his disciples, and he starts delineating this difference. And he says, this is why this is broken. This is why it needs to be fixed. And then he'll go on. Let me, let me pray. God, we love you so much. And even as we talk about the election and, and being chosen, we thank you today that, that you have chosen us to be here today. That you have chosen us to share your grace and your mercy and your love and your power and, your, and, and the hope that you give us through Jesus Christ and the promise of heaven. We, we thank you today for the peace that comes from those things. The peace of truly being forgiving and letting our past be past and being able to live today and into the future without being encumbered by all that stuff from yesterday. We thank you for the power to reconcile relationships in our life. And now that they're broken, it doesn't mean they need to stay broken, but through forgiveness and reconciliation, we can again find unity where there once was brokenness. We thank you for answered prayers, Lord. We don't deserve a single thing, and yet you show mercy and grace to us continually because we are your children. Father, help us rejoice in those things because those are so cool. 
Help us appreciate those things in ways that make us truly thankful so that when we sing praise songs at church, we're actually thanking you for all that you are. Father, help us follow you because we stink at it and forgive us continually, Lord. Help us keep short accounts with you as we walk through life, reminding us that we're always forgiven before you when we come to you. Father, remind us ultimately you got us and that we'll be with you one day. Father, today we just thank you for Jesus, for all that he's done, for all that he is, and for the love that sent him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.